This podcast was produced by members of the Pinsker Centre Policy Fellowship. The Pinsker Centre is a think tank which focuses on global foreign policy whilst promoting freedom of speech and fighting intolerance. If you'd be interested in learning more about our work, follow the Pinsker Centre on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. Applications for the Policy Fellowship Programme will open in the spring. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining us today for another episode of People Talk Politics by the Pinsker Centre. Today, we will be discussing technological innovations and their impact on international security. Now, one of the reasons why this topic is so relevant today is because of the vast and rapid advancements in high technology, what is known as high tech. Now, there have been periods throughout history of mass innovative activity, such as the Industrial Revolution, But many people claim that the computing revolution will supersede in technological significance any period previously known to man. The use of supercomputers, artificial intelligence, drones, and the invention of other novel technologies are going to change life as we know it. Now, as excited as I personally am to see what the human mind can create, it is truly inspiring I do have some serious concerns regarding some of these new technologies and how they are going to be implemented. Today, we'll be discussing several of these concerns in the context of international security. Joining me for this discussion are Nolan Judd from the University of Glasgow and Romy Wolfson from Cambridge University. I am your host, Eli Lassman from the University of Bristol. And let's get started by perhaps asking one of you guys to explain to me, a layman such as myself, what is international security? Uh, Nolan, why don't we start with you? Well, I mean, that is a question that people are still answering and there's lots of different directions for it. But if I read once for one of my classes, a reading by Edward Kolodziej that explained international security as sort of this like Tower of Babel in geopolitics where there's fault lines that separate different communities, whether it's political fault lines, ethnic fault lines, religious fault lines. And these divisions are separating states. This is a states-based system from each other. So Canada and the United States, the fault lines between them are not as great as say between Russia and the United States. And so international security is this management of the fault lines, where if you see like NATO, that states have come together and in order to combat a very large fault line, which was the Soviet Union, and now you see it today with Russia. So international security, according to this approach, is the managing of relations between states against threats against their identity. And Romy, how does that fit in with what you see as international security more broadly? I think it's a very interesting perspective that that Nolan's given with the focus on states and the sort of regional alliances between states and who's regarded as sort of the enemy or outsider state that, that needs to be watched or that needs to be managed through these kinds of technology. But I suppose, so that that's, you know, the, I suppose, more traditional understanding of international security. I would perhaps add that international security is also affected by sort of like non-state actors. So sort of people acting as like proxies for states more maybe on a private level people acting on behalf of states that also needs to be managed through like through these technology systems right 
Okay, so international security, it relates to the relationships between different states and different countries uh, in the context of war and relations. And now, what are some of the emergent technologies of the past few decades that you think, or even uh, more recent than that, that you think are going to have large impact on these relationships? One thing I would really like to pay attention to is not so much the emerging technology of the digital world, but it's not just emerging technology, it's emerging dimension. There's a digital dimension that is becoming extremely important for the way states and non-state actors interact with each other. If you look at social media, for example, there's almost a war being fought physically in Ukraine and also online to push these narratives of warfare in order to keep up morale or to decrease enemy support for the opposing side. You saw this a lot with the Gaza conflict from 2021, where there was almost this entire new sphere of warfare being fought online to push these narratives. And I think that as we go on, like the, the separation between the digital realm and the physical realm will be honed down more. So AI is gonna have a massive effect on that. Deep fake technology is gonna have a massive effect on this. And the more that the world becomes online, or the more the world comes online, the more we will have to adjust to these this new dimension. Yeah, so you've pointed out a really interesting point, uh, the distinction between how wars are fought on two fronts, on the battlefield and also via propaganda back home. And I, and, and then you, you're making the, the point that the, there's been a huge change in how the propaganda is being implemented by various different countries what do you think about the the tech the emerging technologies on the battlefield on the other on the other hand i know that there's been great developments in tank warfare uh, now there's uh, drones i believe that you've done some research in 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 that field Yes, yes, I have. And one interesting thing is now Israel is the first country to, or at least publicly, uh, display this, but there are AI-directed drones, so they operate as a sword. So essentially, it's you send up 10 plus, 40 even, drones all together, and they act as like one autonomous body, where it's it's almost like a drone amoeba, where the AI connects them, so they individually, they can go their own directions, but they're all connected to this one like hive mind. And AI is a very interesting development for this because artificial like artificial intelligence will be able to identify and target actors beneath the ground. And this was used in Gaza, for example, to identify Hamas targets that were targeting the Israeli population. And the use of these swarm drones allowed them almost to have like the supermind operating over the strip where it could identify where the militants were coming from and then move that way and direct targeting fire towards them. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. One of one of my concerns is, is regarding AI and warfare is when it comes to certain decisions at a specific point in time, especially under under stress, which is something that only humans can experience, at least in the psychological sense of the word, that AI won't be able to what is known as make the right call. There are some situations where you have to for example, make a call whether or not you will take down a building that has 100 terrorists, but one family with with children. And that isn't necessarily something that you want to do. So 
I do wonder how the implementation of AI in warfare on the battlefield is going to change how wars are fought, especially for a country like Israel that has all these what are known as moral codes where they will not take down that building if there is a family inside of it. Romy, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I, I think you raise a very important point because as incredible as AI is and the advances that technology has made, over the past few years, I think, as you said, at the end of the day, you can't really replace a human's ability to use discretion and to be able to make split-second moral judgments. I think the Israeli army is still advocating the use of people still managing the, the big decisions and monitoring these operations. But I think it does raise important questions of, you know, the the ethics and the the benefits and the dangers of these kinds of technologies because you know if this kind of technology does get into the wrong hands then it can become a war of cyber and surveillance getting into the wrong hands and you only need to watch i know it's i know it's only fiction but you only need to watch the likes of Fowder and other netflix shows to see how how it can all go wrong so yeah. i think it does raise a lot of concerns, although it does have its incredible benefits in that you do save armies and loss of life of physical hand-to-hand combat by using these sorts of technologies. But obviously it, it it's not infallible and it, it can make mistakes. Technology is neither good nor bad. Technology is beyond good and evil. Technology is a tool for us to achieve a certain end. And we are the ones that make it, and when I say it, I don't mean technology, but we are the ones that make that the use of it good or bad. We can use it for good ends or for bad ends. And you mentioned Fowder. One of the most interesting parts of the last season to me was when they used deepfake to forge a video of a terrorist so that a family member of theirs would then agree to help. Now, regardless of how legitimized that is, I would say that it's a very interesting use of that technology. Uh, And in the realm of international security, it's clear that something like deepfake can be used both for good and for absolute evil, especially if you were to completely fake what a, uh, for example, a president of another country was saying. And I was wondering if you guys thought of any any ways to remedy this problem? Do you think that these types of technologies ought to be regulated or do you think that there ought to be stronger bodies that, like stronger watchdogs, the institutions that are out there to pick apart what is true and what is false in this age of like post-truth where anything can be falsified? What do you think about that, Nolan? It's certainly an interesting question, and, and I feel like it's not as much a manner of enforcement, but more of describing where the responsibility lies. So, I mean, I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen like internet memes will use deep fake voice technology to like include a humorous sentence that's definitely not said by President Biden, but has been edited to make it look like that. And of course, it's just comedy, but it can be used in other ways that can be used, it can be weaponized. And ultimately it comes down to responsibility like is twitter for example responsible for what this user had posted that has spread that was absolutely false and has created harm because of that 
or is it the individual user? And an interesting parallel to look about this is look at like written media, libel, for example. There's every country has different libel laws, but it is this line to describe where like falsities can actually create harm and who's responsible for that. So before we get even towards like enforcement, we need to really settle down like responsibility where those lies. And of course, when you create a deep fake like video, the responsibility to do that, if it's harmful, then there's harm created and therefore like that should be amended somehow. And if there's just comedy, then it's a whole nother direction. We can't just outlaw all deep fake technology because one, it's not going to actually do anything. People are going to get around it. And two, that it, it will ruin a large part of digital culture that's emerging. I think that's definitely true. I personally am of the opinion that you shouldn't outlaw any of it, but you do have a right to your image. And if, if you want to pursue someone or, or take someone to court for using your image, even in a comic sketch, then you have the right to do so. I don't think that you should if it's in, in good faith and, and uh, humorous, but you definitely should be able to take people to court for using a, a video of you in a, in a way that misrepresents what you actually stand for or what you actually do. I was just thinking, I mean, it basically comes down to like identity theft as well. I mean, it's like someone, you know, stealing... I suppose an old-fashioned version would be someone stealing your passport or stealing your ID card and pretending to be you. I think it's, you know, not only it's, you know, it's defamation of character, but it's also just identity theft. I think that's one of the risks also when these platforms have all your information and have collected all sorts of information about you. The risk is that they can start hacking into your account or posting things as if it was you. I think it leads to a whole host of, of issues and, and problems. So Yeah, yeah, it definitely yeah. does. And identity theft is certainly one of those. And it's funny how even talking about international security, we tend to end up on the level of the individual. And it seems that a lot of the solutions to these problems can be found on the level of individuals. And one thing that scares me more than any of the concerns that I have regarding these emergent technologies and how they could be misused is the calls from particular groups of people demanding to restrict technological development and the inability to realize that technological development is the final stage of a long process of thought. Restrictions on technological development are essentially restrictions on the mind. And I think that regardless of how dangerous certain technologies could be in hypotheticals, it is of utmost importance that we continue to develop technology. There's this idea that technological solutions could not fix technological problems, but it's in fact simply false. Every technology, everything that, that is novel brings with it the good and the potential problems. But mm. in most cases, the benefits reaped from these technologies will outweigh the potential problems. And even those potential problems could be solved with more innovative inventions. So it really concerns me hearing this, especially at my university, this call to go back to nature, to revert back to a time where we don't have to work and be productive. And this very anti-computing revolution, much like the anti-industrial revolution that happened at the time, 
Uh, I wonder if you guys have heard similar sentiments at your universities or perhaps elsewhere. I mean, I haven't experienced that at, at this university, but I can understand that some people may be hesitant and nervous of new technology. But I think that people had the same sentiment with the internet and the fear of the dot-com bubble bursting in the 2000s and people were worried that it was going to be the end of the world and they had all these you know, science fiction, dystopian nightmares of the end of the world. But I mean, as we've seen with, with the internet, it's brought incredible advancements to society as a whole, but obviously it can also be used as a mechanism for terrorism and all sorts of other things. But it just comes down to being able to, I think also, I think states do have a responsibility to regulate not over-regulate to the point that it becomes a big brother nanny state, but to regulate so that people have the opportunity to use the technology for the purposes that it was originally created for. Yeah, I think ultimately, like, whether or not individuals have problems with it, like, it is our reality now. We are an incredibly online world, especially our generation is an incredibly online generation. And that's, that is a reality that our governments are, people have to just come to terms with. Like, And an interesting direction, I was thinking of this as you were speaking, Rami, was, I'm not sure if you guys have read, there's a book by Rupert Smith called The Utility of Force. And one of his key themes is how war has changed away from just this industrial land grab direction to this war amongst the people. And the entire concept of war now has shifted to trying to change the population's opinions, their their psyche in a way, to better suit your strategic goals. And whether or not you agree with all aspects of Smith's book in any way, it is still, that is a very interesting direction. And I think looking at the current like Russian military, it makes a lot of sense. So there's a general in Russia named Gerashimov, and he came up with this concept called new generation warfare, how opposed to like over just military tanks going into stealing land, like that is just one part of this new generation of warfare. And a huge emphasis is put onto the digital realm and affecting the psychological like makeup of the population that you're at war with or you're strategically against. And I think the internet has opened those doors. So you can't just target the populations by bombing runs or propaganda leaflets being dropped on no like every aspect of our lives are getting more and more in line and it opens up a new direction for hostile actors to target us and regulation is an interesting way because how do you prevent this from happening do you block apps like china where they have the great firewall or do you allow complete open access to all these digital spheres that can be like thousands of iranian bots that are spewing out this like propaganda russian bots that are trying to influence elections. Like it is a complete new generation of warfare that isn't even war in a lot of ways. It's just realities that can be distorted by our strategic foes. Yeah, that's very true. And I think it's it's indicative of a much broader change, which is a, a philosophical change. And I think that regulating it is definitely not the solution. I think the solution can only, and the, the solution in the truest sense in the word, can only come long-term. And that comes back to the same old, Thing we always do which is education and i think that if people learn how to critically assess a tweet on twitter or a post on facebook 
and realize that it doesn't matter whether it's created by an Iranian bot or by someone legitimate within the US, it says the same thing. And this thing either makes sense or it doesn't. It either is true or it's false. And be able to do the independent research and understand which one of these it lies on, it would make no difference. Uh, we definitely wouldn't need to regulate this thing. And I think, as I pointed out earlier, technology is just the implementation of a long process of thought. If you regulate technology, what you're really regulating is the mind. And it's true that some people can, and when I say some people, it's more likely to be some governments can use these technologies for bad causes, but technology in itself is neither good nor bad, and it would be impossible to regulate it as such. So we've had these conversations before. I'm completely against any form of regulation. There is a line to be drawn between which technology one can own and one cannot. For example, I don't think a citizen should be able to own a nuke, but I think they should be able to own a pistol. And I think somewhere in between those two extremes lies the dividing line between what an individual should and should not own. And that's really a, a topic for the philosophy of law. But I don't think that the development of technology and technological process ought to be regulated. I think that the only way for us to really progress as, as individuals and societies is if we let our scientists have complete freedom over whatever it is they research. Now, of course, there needs to be some necessary precautions taken and put in place. I mean, we, we've all experienced the past three, four years of COVID, which was essentially, a, from what I understand, likely due to very low precautions in the workplace. But I think that these ought to be implemented because a lab, a company, or a private individual wants to protect their own reputation and not necessarily because it's mandated by law. I think you, you raise very interesting and important points. My only concern is, I think, I, I understand, I mean, the law is a very slow moving machine and it can't keep up with the pace of technology and that, but I think it does come down to the technology platforms as well, like Twitter and Facebook, if they have been sent alerts and reports by a few people over time that there's some terror groups operating or that someone is advocating for violence on, on their platforms and that, and they just, it takes them time to remove the posts. Obviously that enters into the whole realm of freedom of speech and what, you know, where to draw the line. But I think the platforms do bear responsibility for the content that, that is on them. Obviously the cyber attacks, what Nolan was talking about, definitely a whole new dimension russia's also been i was just reading that russia's also been collecting dna on a lot of its uh, citizens so that they can watch for future dissidents or future people that try and evade uh, conscription so there's a whole internal security risk there as well but it's, it's a ever-changing area and it's uh, i think it's it's something that will you know, we'll, we'll have to come back to and discuss again and again. I think the most like important thing is Eli was saying, just building awareness. And if individual minds are the new battleground of international security and the digital realm being the best way to access this, then to use the expression of the great British people, it's like we need to develop a stiff upper lip when it comes to technological opposition in a way. And digital literacy is perhaps the best way to combat this. And 
I'm not sure if you guys have this experience, but when I was in middle school, we learned how to use computers. We learned how to type that. And maybe just a new dimension of that is being able to filter out like what is propaganda, what is true, what is not. These are all things that just take skill. And the best way to start that is by teaching that. And as warfare develops and as there's going to be new technologies that we don't know, we still need to be aware of them most of all and be able to combat them. And the best way of doing that is just to prevent the individuals from being targeted by these actors and prevent these individuals from falling prey to the whatever directions these are. Yeah, that's a very good point and very good place to end on. Uh, Romy, I think that the the problem of platforms such as Twitter and Facebook having false information on them or terror groups calls to violence uh, is one that's easily remedied. And I don't think that freedom of speech really enters there because it's a private institution. We discussed this on our previous podcast that you can't come into my house and say whatever it is that you want. And the same goes for Facebook and Twitter. Unfortunately, they're very in, in, involved uh, and influenced by government. So, but, but that's a whole separate issue. And then as to your example with, with regard to Russia, I think that's atrocious. And I think the problem there is not so much the technology, it's more the tyrannical government. And I think that seems to be an overarching theme with, with a lot of the problems that have arisen throughout this episode. And then Nolan, I completely agree with you. I think that the greater solution to some of these potential problems is freedom of information getting people educated on these potential issues and generally how to use these technologies and how to live a better life using these technologies. Technologies are there to better our lives. They're there to make everything easier and more valuable to us. So I want to thank you both for joining me on this episode of People Talk Politics. Uh, I was Eli Lassman. 